the Bain Free Radio Hour. On the podcast, Disaster Among the Stars, Destructors, Saviors, Dragons, Valkyries, and a toothbrush that works in the fourth dimension, which is time. Plus, we continue with the complete audiobook serialization of David Drake's The Sea Without a Shore, all right now. Welcome to the Bain Free Radio Hour podcast. It's an honor to have you along. I'm Bain Editor Tony Daniel. And I'm Bain Editorial Assistant Christopher Rocchio. We continue with our most excellent interview with David Weber talking about his great new entry in the Honor Harrington series, Shadow of Victory. This is part two of a three-part interview. Part three will be available next week, just in time for Black Friday. Consider that our Black Friday special, but for now, I hope you enjoyed this segment. And of course, we continue with the complete audiobook serialization of The Sea Without a Shore by David Drake. Now, here's the news. There's new free fiction and nonfiction on the Bain.com website. For November fiction, we have a story by William Ledbetter that is called Tethers. In the cold vacuum of space, following rules and regulations may just save your life. It's something astronaut and mission engineer Hartman knows well. But soon, the cold equations of space and the folly of his all-too-human crewmate make what should have been a routine repair a desperate bid for survival. If he's to make it out alive, Hartman may have to think outside of the rules and regulations, but remember, the cold equations will always apply. The nonfiction for this month is a great piece about helicopters in fiction. It's written by Casey Ezell. Captain Casey Ezell is a helicopter pilot in the U.S. Air Force, and she was one of John Ringo's principal advisors on his helicopter stuff. She still is. She's also an author in her own right. She had the cover story in last summer's excellent uh, Black Tide Rising anthology, and she's got more Bane projects coming up. Casey's piece is called Of Dragons and Valkyries, Helicopters in Fiction. It's a really fascinating piece by someone who knows her stuff. Tethers and Of Dragons and Valkyries, Helicopters in Fiction are both available on the Bane.com main page. After that, they'll be in the free ebook anthologies, free short stories 2016, and free nonfiction 2016 as part of the Bane Free Library and available in all e reader formats at baneebooks.com. This is part two of a three-part interview with David Weber discussing his new Honor Harrington novel, Shadow of Victory. Part three will be available next time on the podcast. What you were describing is it's, there's a powder keg that's brewing on the, on the, out in the edges of the Slarian League, and, and it, the, it's really uh, a rotten system. Um, and the fuse, to talk about one of the uh, characters in the book, probably not the main hero, but a main character in the book, and somebody I know you like as a character, is uh, Damien Harahop. Um, oh, yeah. And I've got some of my fans like, I don't understand why I like that guy. He's responsible for the death of millions, <laughs> hundreds of millions of people. And that's really not fair, okay? He just misunderstood. Uh <laughs> 
Damien Harahap is uh, sort of, in many ways, a um, a Solarian Victor Kasha. Um, he is um, comes from a totally different place. Victor is is motivated by this um, absolutely incandescent, unyielding commitment to his core principles. Um, as they are represented in the resurgent Republic of Haven. And he's prepared to kill however many people he has to, to to protect those things that he holds as his fundamental core principles. Damien came uh, from a system in which the only way out of the miserable conditions of his family's life was to be co-opted by the system, um, and as such, he is this. He's frankly uh, uh, a brilliant guy. Uh, he's, he's he's got he's, in many ways he's a polymath, um, even though he doesn't think of himself that way. Uh, he is he is he's like an absolute chameleon when it comes to, to infiltration and whatnot. Um, he is he, he clearly understands. Uh, how how the the people that he's working with and the people who are his targets think uh, he's capable of great empathy even with people who he is ultimately working to to for all intents and purposes destroy. But I think one thing that some people miss when they're looking at Damien in this book is the original. Plan. He, he's co-opted. Okay, let's. Okay, he's co-opted by the Mason alignment. In addition to having been part of the Solarian League, because he is essentially loaned to the Mason alignment by a corrupt sector governor uh, to help in the effort to destabilize the Talbot quadrant before it Talbot sector before it votes to join the the um, the Star Empire. And when that expo- when that operation blows up, there are a lot of people who want to kill Damien because they're tidying up loose ends that could lead the investigation back home in the Solarian League, which what happened in the Talbot sector and at Monica was so egregious that even the Solarian League had to take – it's like, oh, wait, those battle cruisers that our transpeller friend here scrapped for reclamation – somehow wound up in the hands of a rogue star nation with all of their original hardware and software still on board. This is like, yes, we're going to break up the uh, aircraft carrier enterprise when it reaches the end of its service life, but what we're really going to do is give it a new reactor, put new planes on it, and sell it to to uh, uh, Syria. <laughs> okay, that's what these guys did. And so even the Solarian League has to take cognizance of that, and there have to be consequences for somebody. And the somebody's in question would really prefer that it's not them, and they see killing Damien as a way to help bury their tracks. So he can't remain uh, an operative of the Solarian Gendarmerie, which is their, um, for want of a better term, it's their paramilitary police organization. Um and so he signs on full-time with the Mason alignment. He, he needs somewhere to go 
and they're offering him the most money. Um, so he winds up working for the Mason Alignment in something called Operation Janus. And Operation Janus is a Mason op with multiple objectives. It's primarily directed at the Star Kingdom of Manticore. And its first and primary uh, uh, purpose is to create a perception in the Solarian League that the Star Empire is pursuing a policy of deliberate imperialism out in the fringe, that the expansion into Talbot wasn't an accident, that it was part of a planned, long-standing uh, Manticoran uh, agenda. The reason for that they want to establish that is that it causes the, the, the Mandarins, the bureaucrats who run the Solarian League, to panic when they think that Manticore is setting out to systematically deprive it of its funding sources in, in the fringe. And it also sets the stage to demonize Manticore in the eyes of the Solarian League public when Mason uh, and government propagandists deploy all of the, the, I'm sorry, deploy, they don't deploy, they, they portray all of the carnage and the bloodshed resulting from Solarian policy as being the consequences of Manticoran policy. It's to make the Mantis the bad guys in the eyes of, of uh, the Solarian public. But it goes further than that, because essentially what Operation Janus is, is a bunch of Mason operatives, <clears throat> one of whom, and arguably the most effective of whom, is Damien Harahap, who present themselves to groups in systems where, star systems where the political and economic structure is especially oppressive. These agents present themselves as representatives of Manticore. And they say, you know, we are at war with the Solarian League and it would therefore obviously be beneficial for us to like divert Solarian attention, etc. We like you guys. Um, so, we will support you in your effort to overthrow the local kleptocracy or kick OFS out of the system or shoot the local transstellar and take over its, its ill-gotten gains, etc. To the extent that we will also provide naval support to protect you if the Solarian Navy tries to, to put down your, your domestic revolt. And they're promising this to these people and giving them communications links back to Manticore that actually go back to Mesa or go nowhere at all. And the objective here from the Mason perspective is to get these people to rise in rebellion, call for Manticore and support, and then not get it. And the object is to discredit the, 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 the Star Empire in the eyes of members of the fringe themselves to portray Manticore as being willing to promote a revolution that it knows is going to get thousands or even millions of people killed as a cold-blooded ploy that it has no intention of honoring its promises or anything else. This is solely, we're throwing you into the path of the Solarian League to divert them from us. That's how they want it to be seen. Um, and the object there is to make it 
to, to turn the fringe against Manticore. Obviously, it will make Manticore look even worse to the people in the Solarian League who think of them as conniving Machiavellian expansionist imperialists. It'll make them look even worse. But the other thing that it will do is Manticore enjoys this reputation of being a star nation of its word. If it tells you it will do something, it will do it, which is one reason it doesn't make a whole lot of interstellar obligations, because it plans to fulfill any that it makes, and everybody knows it. So a Manticoran promise of naval support is, is it's, it's, it's gold in the bank. Uh, as far as the plant persons planning these revolts are concerned. And Mesa wants to turn all that gold into lead so that the Star Empire won't be able to continue growing on the one hand, and on the other hand, the Star Empire will not be the attractive alternative to the Renaissance faction, which is the group of star systems that Mesa is planning to use as the core of its new solar polity. So Damien is basically being sent to communicate with these revolutionary groups and to promise them support. So, And by the way, to provide support right up to the moment they call for naval intervention. They're smuggling in small arms. They're smuggling in heavy weapons. Uh, you know, Damien is really and truly substantially increasing the odds that these local resistance movements will succeed. Now, he's not necessarily moving the needle far enough to make it likely for them to succeed. And ultimately, if Operation Janus works, even if they do succeed, Frontier Security of the Navy will simply move in to reverse their success. So ultimately, most of these star systems that he is helping are going to be screwed over, even if their revolt succeeds. But Damien hopes most of them will succeed, and he uh, actually points out to his superiors that from Operation Janus's perspective, it would help for some of these operations to succeed because that increases the stature of the Manticoran threat in the perception of the Solarian government and the Solarian public. Damien actually wishes most of the people he's working with well, and he has this sort of, of mild regret that it's not going to end well for them but his, his thinking is, in part, if I don't do this, someone else will. He doesn't really know what the alignment is up to with the genetics and everything. He, know, he, he knows, no, he doesn't. Uh, he knows more than most people do because, uh, well, do I want to talk about the next book and spoiler stuff? No, don't do that. <laughs> well, the people listening <laughs> to this podcast be upset if I do that. Well, the alignment has all these layers. You call it the onion. Um, yeah, yeah, yeah. Well, okay, okay. You can see this beginning to emerge in in the last couple of of, of shadow books. Um, essentially, the folks in the alignment who really know the alignment's plans, true plans, on Mesa is very, very small. No more than a couple hundred thousand people, max, out of a population well up in the billions. Um, the broader Mason alignment 
consists of people who feel, with some justification, I will add, that the Beowulf Life Sciences Code is too restrictive where genetic improvement is concerned. Um, the, 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 the true bitterness of the, of the dispute here goes back like 400 years, 500 years, 600 years. I can't remember for sure without checking my notes. But Mesa was originally founded by dissidents from Beowulf. Beowulf has been for, you know, over, over a thousand years, has been the, um, the uh, uh, sun source of the health sciences in the biosciences in Manticore, um, in in the in in the Honorverse, excuse me. Um, Beowulf is the gold standard for healthcare, for medical treatment, for et cetera. And the Beowulf Life Sciences Code was established immediately after what we call Earth's final war, which is also when the Solarian League itself was established. Basically, Earth managed to pretty much depopulate itself. It was, it was bad uh, with the use of biological and genetically engineered um, uh, weapons and soldiers. Um, there's a group running around today in the Honorverse, uh, the, the Scrags, who are the descendants of super soldiers that were designed uh, for this final war. And they were probably the mildest of the things that got turned loose. So Beowulf led the uh, massive interstellar effort that saved humanity's whole world and basically decontaminated it and, and rebuilt it. And along the way, they established the Beowulf Life Sciences Code, which has a bunch of really, really, really good stuff in it, and also has a prohibition on enhancement of the human genome beyond the inherent capabilities of the individual zygote. Uh, you can't, for example, decide, well, I think I'll introduce a little cheetah DNA in here because it will increase the, the muscular efficiency of the human being involved. And it's really strict on things like uh, tinkering with, uh, with uh, intelligence and, and so forth because of some bad experiences <laughs> that they had earlier. Well, there were a bunch of folks on Beowulf who were just, horrified that the that the consensus of, of Beowulf medical opinion would support this restrictive view because they see genetic enhancement as the path to the upward trend of evolution. They see it as an opportunity to do incremental improvement until we get to humanity 2.0 or 2.3 or 6.0. And Beowulf's life science code stands squarely in the way of doing that. It has the force of law uh, throughout the Solarian League. Um, now, Mesa is not part of the Solarian League. It was, it was originally colonized, like I say, by a bunch of dissidents from Beowulf who established it in no small part specifically to get out from under the limitations of the Beowulf Life Sciences Code. 
However, there were limitations on what they could do because of how everybody else in the galaxy was operating under the limitations of the Beowulf Life Sciences Code. You, you, whatever Mesa thought about the restrictions of the code, it could not flout them too openly because God only knew what the rest of the galaxy would do. Because remember that they're being established fairly shortly after the final war when the galaxy has had a really good reason to say, no, no, this genetic manipulation crap. No, no, we've got to keep a handle on it. All right. So the, the, the Mason alignment began fairly soon after Mesa was colonized. And it consists of a bunch of people who clandestinely are working to promote genetic enhancement without drawing attention to themselves while they do it. So they have to be very gradual, they have to be very careful, blah, 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 blah. And the Mason, uh, the, the, the inner onion of the Mason Alliance, the, the core of the onion, the folks who understand the Detweiler plan, as, as they call it, its true objectives, use their parasite nested within the greater Mason alignment. For example, Mesa is the source of genetic slavery in, in the galaxy, of uh, human beings who are deliberately designed for specific purposes and, the, the, and, and, and sold like property uh, to unscrupulous people throughout the Solarian League and the Verge where genetic slavery is like almost universally outlawed, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera, but they still do it under the radar, okay? And in a lot of ways, genetic slavery produced by Manpower Incorporated is not an economically viable institution. It loses money, although that's not immediately apparent because Manpower is much more diversified than a lot of people realize, and its other operations cover any net loss it might suffer on the on the slavery front. The reason that manpower has continued uh, to produce slaves for so long is for leverage for the inner onion on people who are involved in genetic slavery. Oh, you don't want us to tell the gendarmes about this, now do you? Kind of blackmail control. And the slaves have served in many cases as a laboratory for many of the enhancements incorporated into the the alpha, beta, and gamma lines, where the where the alignment is in enhancing uh, genotypes. There's actually quite a lot of commonality in the DNA of the slaves and the alpha line masons. Um, it's just that the Masons tend to combine multiple, multiple good points, whereas most of the of the um, the uh, slave lines do not. Okay, so interestingly enough, though, where I was where I was going with all of that, the Mason alignment, not the onion, but the alignment as a whole, is horrified by the existence of genetic slavery. They see it as an indelible blot on Mesa. They see it as something which fuels the galaxy's perception of genetic manipulation as a bad thing. And they don't realize that their own leadership cadre is directing 
manpower incorporated slaving operations and have used them as a cover for all kinds of black ops throughout the galaxy for the last two and a half centuries. Um, so all of this complex mix is going on inside the Mesa star system. And one of the things that is looked at in Shadow of Victory is how the onion is going to to disappear before the inevitable Manticore and Havenite blow against the the sun source of I'm using that term a lot uh, against against the the the, uh, the originators of all the crap that's been thrown at both the Republic and Manticore over the last 300 years. Yeah. Well, they have enormous, over the years, because of manpower and other, they have enormous resources. They're devoting those resources. Uh, that's the reason that uh, Damien Herhop has so much stuff to, to give away, so much candy to give to revolutionary forces. And in, and in fact, uh, the, uh, the onion not the alignment as a whole, but the onion has an entire flipping star system with like three, four billion people living in it that nobody else knows has even been colonized. Um, and and um, they're, 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 this, the bulk of the population has been produced exactly the way genetic slaves were produced by manpower. But they're not slaves. And in fact, they believe that one reason that their star system exists, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera, is that it is the Mason uh, uh, Alliance public faces, if you will, military backup, that they are going to be the, the uh, industrial and military backbone of the effort that goes out to finally eradicate uh, genetic slavery from the universe, et cetera, et cetera. I mean, these guys, the, the alignment, has been sitting there saying, let's see, how can we program these guys? And they not the alignment not only intends to disappear, the onion not only intends to disappear from, from the, the home world, okay, they intend for most of their machinations to simply disappear completely into history and eventually to present themselves as the leaders of the folks who decided they needed to create a separate star system in order to fight the inherent corruption on Mesa and defend the concept of genetic uplift. And they are... They are... If they had incorporated one-tenth of the effort that they put into all these clandestine operations and so forth, they probably could have won a propaganda war with the rest of the galaxy to say, yeah, sure, let's do genetic enhancement 200, 300 years ago. But like a lot of our politicians today, they've been operating in the bubble. The only people they talk to are each other. And they are... They are as much invested in proving they were right as they are in proving that Beowulf was wrong. Okay? They are hugely invested in a solution to the problems of the Beowulf life science codes, which 
they imposed, thereby validating the original decision to colonize Beowulf and every single thing they've done since. And they are so committed to that that they don't even recognize the fact that what they are doing is fundamentally stupid. Yeah. Because they're very smart people they're making very <laughs> smart mistakes. <laughs> they're the smartest guys in the room. I'm saying. That, yeah. That they're outthinking them themselves. Well, uh, to, in the book, a lot of the action, to get away from Mason alignment, which is, um, you know, that's the... That is an overall overarching strategic part of the whole uh, yeah. the whole series. Um, yeah. Damien is is we we spend a lot of time with these reactionaries and revolutionaries and uh, uh, and they're fun people. I, I get a feeling you just love creating these characters. Um, there's a whole Polish world here that is a, a lot of fun. They're Slavic, all right. You see, so you have two Slavic entities. They're Polish, yes. Uh, well, okay, uh, they, if you look at them, they have different problems. Okay, the Czechs at, at, in Chotobar, um the, the ethnic, well, they're, okay, but there's, there's a very Czech flavor to the, to, the, uh, to the entire society, but it's also built in large part on kind of the standard template of the Salarian League at the time that Chotobar was colonized, okay? So there's a lot of commonality. Yeah, okay, it's like standard English in the Honorverse, which I've tried to establish clearly has evolved considerably from our English because people have to go back and look up words if they're reading 20th century or earlier manuscripts because, well, that ain't in the language anymore or it sure has changed kind of thing. Uh, but it's kind of the the, uh, the the 18th, 19th century French, or the the first century AD Latin. It's the it's the interstellar language that every educated individual speaks. Then a lot of these planets where ethnicities have been preserved or have evolved tend to have other language elements that that creep in, and they actually in in Slavic which is the, the Polish planet, Polish is actually the primary language with standard English used to talk to foreigners. Okay? Um, and that's one reason why I have so many Polish uh, uh, names for institutions and so forth. Okay, the Czechs have sort of the classic, we are in debt peonage to frontier security and to these two trans-stellars trans that have gone in together, etc. The Poles, it's, a, it's, a, it's really a prosperous star system, but the prosperity is completely dominated by a very small percentage of the population. That sounds a lot like medieval economic. Poland, David. <laughs> with the magnets and the serfs. And... Well, okay, but it doesn't sound like present-day Poland, okay? Yeah. Um, it sounds more like... Um, well, that's what I mean. It sounds like uh, the Poland of, of the Middle Ages. Well, yeah, well, no. No, 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 no. Oh, okay. The huge difference. Okay. What finally killed the Poland of the Middle Ages was, first of all, its, its position 
which meant that kind of like Germany, it was, you know, in in a position where there was bound to be a dogfight on its borders. Yeah. And there are no natural features to make the borders very... Anyway, yes, go on. Sorry. Not, yeah, the yeah, best, best you can do usually is rivers, okay? You know, you don't have a lot of Alps and, and that kind of thing. You know, it ain't Switzerland, you know. Um, the... Um, the, the thing that killed the Poles was the inability to establish a powerful enough, a sufficiently powerful central government. Um, that's my reading of it anyway. Yeah. Uh, when you have a situation where actually the Salarian League in the system which gives every single star system veto right, okay, which is why so few laws are passed and they use regulations to get around the laws, um, Every star system has veto right. Well, in the Polish parliament, every baron had veto right. So nothing got passed unless everybody agreed to it. Yeah. Well, the back, the barons, the magnates didn't allow yeah, Vladislav, a king to... Vladislavic doesn't have that problem. Okay, yeah. Well, but see, Vladislav does. Vladislavic, Vlad, Vladislavic does. Um, and, the, the, and there's been a political revolution that established uh, uh, that was that came out of what they called the agitation uh, that was led by a charismatic uh, college professor and basically broke the stranglehold of the of the local kleptocracy oligarchy on the economy and so forth of Poland of, of Vladislavic, except that it did because it got co-opted when the when the 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 power elites realized that they couldn't stop it, not without a lot of bloodshed and everything else, which of course would destroy their own prosperity. What they did is they succeeded in doing what the Weimar. Uh, 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 industrialists and so forth thought they could do with Hitler. Okay, they succeeded in, in essence, taking over the movement from behind the curtain. And what we're looking at on Vladislavic is one of the guys who was part of the original agitation. Um, he was himself an oligarch, very wealthy, very wealthy. Um, and he has quietly gone along with this subversion of his original political goals, uh, his belief in individual freedom and so forth. He's part of the system. He's swilling at the trough. And what none of his, his, uh, his oligarchical uh, uh, colleagues knows, understands, is that at the same time he is secretly building a new revolutionary organization to do by force of arms what they were foiled uh, in accomplishing through the through the uh, political system. Yeah, this is the what's his name Schmidt. It, it starts with an S. I can't remember. <laughs> yeah, I, I, I pronounce I pronounce it Tomas Spander, and I will guarantee you that uh, is the incorrect pronunciation. And any Poles or Czechs listening to this broad this podcast. <laughs> I abjectly apologize for what my pronunciation does to your language. Uh, part of the problem was that I used Dragon Naturally Speaking, and I had to have something that it would recognize. <laughs> so I had to decide how to pronounce these these names that I could not possibly pronounce correctly. Yeah. 
at them on on a sheet of paper. Um, the um, but what the difference between Vladislavic and and uh, Chotibor, um are that one is a rebellion directed specifically against the Salarian League, and the other is a rebellion directed at a domestic power group, which, when it sees its power being effectively threatened, calls in frontier security. This is the classic pattern that's been followed in many other fringe star systems. Uh, a group which is in power and can theoretically claim to be the legit legitimate government requests Solarian assistance in dealing with terrorists and revolutionaries and terrible, awful people who are actually trying to overthrow an unjust, corrupt government. Well, the unjust, corrupt government climbs into bed with the Solarian League. The Solarian League comes in, quashes the revolutionary movement, and then, in essence, the local government becomes the front men for the Solarian League. And that's precisely what is in the process of happening in, in Vladislavic. While this whole book is, well, well, this whole Operation Janus is playing out, at both Vladislavic and Chotibor, uh, have been promised uh, assistance. The guy that runs Sokol, S-O-K-O-L, that, that's the Chodeborg one, right? Yeah. He's, yeah. yeah, that's Chodeborg. Um, but it's, yeah, and Sokol, by the way, um, is a direct uh, uh, analogy, direct borrowing from history. Sokol was uh, a, uh, quote, sports organization, close quotes, in... Um, in what is now uh, the Czech Republic, um, which was established specifically to promote the Czech national identity within the uh, Austrian Empire. And Soko provided uh, quite a few troops uh, to the Allies during the First World War and, in fact, also provided the nucleus for the Czech uh, military post-war. Um, so, and in the book, uh, Sokol is established very early on in the existence of the of the colony as a means to to safeguard the the deep Czech roots of a lot of the original colonists. It only becomes a front for a revolutionary organization um, after Solarian uh, intervention. Um, so, Chodeborg basically is owned, it's the company store model going on there with their their Silver Oaks, and that's them, right? Yeah, yeah there it is. Yeah, really, really. And, and one of the reasons that I did these two systems in such detail is to give the reader what I hope is a kind of goes-to-the-bone understanding of how the simple existence of the, of the Solarian League and the operations of frontier security have, have damaged all of these star systems that, it, that it's impinged upon 
because the reader needs to understand why this incredible simmering hostility to the Solarian League stretches all around the perimeter of the League. And one of the reasons the reader needs to understand it is that the typical citizen of a core world doesn't have a clue. They do not have a clue what the reality of frontier securities operations out in the fringe are. They just that they, they they accept the official view that we are there as a force for good. That we are we're stronger together and we're gonna pull you know, this is gonna be the way that that we're gonna uplift these these societies, these these benighted neobarb systems to the enlightened height of the Solarian League. And the Solarian League, a typical Solarian League citizen doesn't even think about the degree of arrogance that he or she has in how they regard everything outside the League. It's it's kind of like the Roman view that you're either a Roman citizen or a barbarian. There is a, the, possibly my favorite scene in the book is the, the illustration of this which is the uh, confrontation in uh, Eleanor Nora's uh, Allenby's guide shop with this jackass. <laughs> that was really a fun scene. Yeah. Well, you know, it's like I, I, I got an itch to exercise my constitutional rights. <laughs> you know, I, I like the Allenby's, okay? That's I, the Scottish um, planet, as it were. Uh, the 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 uh, the riots which follow 
take on a hugely political overtone um, and lead to the the uh, transformation of the Chotaborian government. Um, so I, I try to come up with scenarios in which human beings make decisions that then govern not only their actions, but the consequences for everyone involved. Um, and I was asked, actually I've been asked several times, but uh, I've been asked, what are the, the defining characteristics of a David Weber hero or heroine? I think the question was actually David Weber heroine because I had so many female characters running around. But I thought about it, and the defining characteristic of a David Weber hero or heroine is that they are responsibility takers. Um, they don't look at a situation, for example, and say, oh, man, that's really sucky, but it's not my job, and walk away. They look at a situation and say, oh, that's a sucky situation, and somebody has to do something about it. It might as well be me. Um, and they take responsibility for the consequences of their actions, too. And frankly, I think that's something that explains why the books resonate with uh, American readership uh, to the extent that they do, is that there's a general perception, and the current election cycle isn't helping it, that in this country, in this society, people don't face consequences for their actions. Uh, that that they can that they can justify failure by saying, well, my intentions were good, uh, and therefore that should obviate that that should absolve me of having made a really bad decision because, hey, I meant well, okay. Uh, on the one hand, and on the other hand, people who simply say, I'm I'm in with the guys who control the the the. The, the levers of power, whether they're whether they're judicial or economic or political, and therefore I am protected and insulated from the consequences of any of my actions. Uh, and I think that that is something that resonates with my readership because we're so sick and tired of it. I mean, it, I don't think it matters what your political persuasion is in the current election cycle. The way in which individuals evade consequences is simply appalling to most of us. And so when we have a chance to see human beings who don't simply try to avoid the consequences of their actions, to accept the consequation, the consequences of their action. Um, it makes us, it reminds us that human beings really can do that. And one of the things that I most deplore about the current political climate in the United States is that there are people who are doing that and we simply can't pick them out of the clutter and the crap 
that dominates our perception of our 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 national political and economic leadership. I'm not saying that they're all angels because they sure aren't, and I'm not saying that we don't have huge problems, but there really are people out there who are trying to do something about it, which is a pretty thankless task at the moment, if you think about it. And I think that one of the things the heroes and heroines of my books do is to help us remember those folks Mm -hmm. out there. That was part two of a three-part interview with David Weber, author of Shadow of Victory. Part three will appear next time on the podcast. Now we continue with our complete audiobook serialization of David Drake's The Sea Without a Shore. It seems Cinnabar's chief spymaster is a mother also, and her son is determined to search for treasure in the midst of a civil war. Who better to hold the boy's hand and to take the blows directed at him than Captain Daniel Leary, the Republic of Cinnabar Navy's troubleshooter, and his friend the cyberspy Adele Mundy. The only thing certain in the struggle for control of the mining planet Corsera is that the rival parties are more dangerous to their own allies than to their opponents. Daniel and Adele face kidnappers, pirates, and a death squad, even before they can get to the real business of ending the war on Coursera and bringing their charge home, maybe along with ancient alien treasure. Now here is the next entry of David Drake's The Sea Without a Shore. Chapter 17 Above Ischia Daniel opened his eyes as the Kaisha finished shuddering back into the sidereal universe. He'd found extraction from the Matrix this time to be startlingly nasty. He felt as if all the nerves on his left side were being ripped out of the skin. But extraction was never pleasant, and the process was over for now. He rubbed his left forearm with his palm and scanned the plot position indicator to which his display was set. Freighter Kaisha to Iskian patrol vessels, B-113 and B-17, Cazalet said. We request landing clearance for Jezreel, the central town of the Monfiori clan. Over. Cazalet must have had an unusually easy extraction. He certainly sounded brighter than Daniel could have imagined. Ship, prepare for high drive, Daniel said. He gimbled the three high drive motors as closely as possible to the freighter's axis of motion and switched them on. They vibrated badly. Motor 2 cut out several times in the first 20 seconds. Daniel waited until the motors had steadied, then brought the total impulse up to 1G. This took the Kaisha out of freefall and began to break the momentum she had brought with her from the Matrix. A ship could only change her speed in normal space, but the constants of velocity and distance varied from one bubble of the cosmos to the next. Ships moved between universes, each time multiplying their rate of motion relative to the sidereal universe. When they finally extracted from the Matrix, they were many light-years from where they had inserted. Astrogation computers could provide solutions for anyone who knew enough to program a destination. A moderately skilled astrogator with current data could cut transit times by as much as half over those of a console solution. 
Skilled astrogators viewed the cosmos from outside the hull and refined their courses according to the momentary energy levels which they read in the apparent colors of the bubble universes they observed. Commander Stacy Bergen, the brother of Daniel's mother, was renowned as the best astrogator ever to wear the uniform of the RCN. If he had a rival, it was Daniel Leary, the nephew whom Bergen had trained from infancy. Patrol vessels B-113 and B-17, Cazalet repeated. He had been using tight-beam microwave with separate sending units aimed at the widely separated Ischian ships. This time he added a short wave hailing frequency, 15.5 megahertz in the 20-meter band. This is freighter Kaisha out of Corsera, seeking permission to land at Jezreel over. The Kaisha had extracted 29,000 miles above Ischia, performance that most captains and most crews would have considered miraculous. Even Daniel had to admit that there had been a good deal of luck in the result, though an experienced RCN officer was expected to come within 50,000 miles more often than not. The patrol ships were in powered orbits at 100,000 miles, where tramp freighters were most likely to extract. Images captured by the Kaisha's newly fitted optics showed that B-113 and B-117 were small freighters coupled to huge tanks, which allowed them to hold station at 1G acceleration for months instead of weeks. Tugs could replace the water buffaloes when necessary and probably rotate the crews. The duty was as boring as that of a lighthouse keeper on the ground, but Daniel knew there were people whose personalities were a perfect fit. If Daniel simply concentrated on his display, he could pretend that he was back in the Princess Cecile. The consoles were effectively identical. The freighter's limited sail plan had prevented Daniel from taking advantage of subtleties with which the corvette would have saved a few minutes here, a few hours there, on the way to Ischia. All in all, however, the Kaisha was a sound little vessel which had amply justified Sun's praise of her. Kaisha, this is one-three a male voice responded from B-113. The vessel was slightly more distant than its sister, but she and the Kaisha were in approaching orbits. What is your cargo over? Sir, said Corey, using a jump seat and a flat plate display. He was using a two-way link rather than a general push, though any communications aboard a ship where Adele had set up the net included her. The Monfioris have issued a general alert, and some of their neighbors are doing the same thing. They're not planning an ambush, but everybody's supposed to grab his gun and be ready. Over. During the rebuild, four flat plate displays had been added to the freighter's bridge. Daniel realized that he didn't know whether Mon had done the work on his own hook, or if it was a gift from Adele's other employer. They didn't add computing power, but they used only an insignificant fraction of the command console's capacity, unless they were attempting astrogation. Understood, Corey, Daniel said. That was what he had expected. The people who had planned and executed the envoy's kidnapping would certainly be ready to respond to a smash-and-grab rescue attempt. B-113, Cazalet said. According to Daniel's display, he was on microwave only, but he was continuing to copy the other patrol vessel. We're not carrying any cargo. We've come to discuss the release of Corsiran envoys with the Monfiori clan. Kaisha, over. Sun had a gunnery array up on the third flat plate display. Daniel didn't imagine that the Kaisha would need her 50-millimeter pop gun, but neither was there any better present use for the unit. Knowing that the gunner was ready to respond probably calmed some of the spacers, and Daniel rather liked knowing it also. Kaisha, the patrol vessel said. 
This is your first landing here. Be aware that customs officials will be on the ground by the time you're ready to open your hatches. There is a 1% tariff on everything imported to Ischia, and we're bloody serious about it. Your ship will be confiscated if you try to evade the tariff over. Understood, B-113, Cazalet said calmly. We have no cargo on this voyage over. Sir, volunteered Corey. They run their whole planetary government off the tariff. There isn't much government, but they're still being pinched by the way trade shut down to the planet over. Thank you, Corey, Daniel said. That could be important, over. Daniel hadn't bothered to learn about the planetary government since his dealings would be with the Monfiores alone. It was comforting to know that there was no chance of an Ischian destroyer appearing if things went wrong, though. They don't search ships in orbit, Corey said. But they ask where you're landing and send an air car from the nearest customs station on the ground. If anybody gets gay with the inspectors, the clan's neighbors come in and take care of things. That hasn't happened in 30 years, though, over. There had been a period at the beginning of the hiatus when Cinnabar had a similar government, or a lack of government. The Xenos region expanded, either by conquest or the voluntary association of families in other regions. The Learys of Bantry had joined Xenos, and had used that alliance to bludgeon other families on the southwest coast into submission to them as well as to the central government. Corder Leary was a proper descendant of those ancestors, and perhaps his son was too. The ability to see the way a situation was developing, and to get on the right side of those developments, was as useful to an RCN officer as it was to a politician. The fragmented nature of Ischia's settled terrain had allowed the clans to remain largely independent. Ischia wasn't a place where you would look for great art or, Daniel smiled, great libraries. But as with isolated patrol vessels, there would be people that the life suited. All right, Kaisha, the orbiting controller said. You're clear to Jezreel. One, one, three out. Daniel paused a moment, then said, Shep, this is six. We're going to start hard breaking in one minute. When we disembark in Jezreel, we will not be carrying sidearms. Repeat, not. This is going to go fine unless somebody screws up, and I am not going to make it easy for these boneheads on the ground to screw up. Six out. He pressed execute with both thumbs together, the way he had learned to do as a cadet on a training ship which was older than his grandfather. That seemed a lifetime ago, but it was only ten years. The high-drive motors switched to maximum impulse, and the plasma thrusters added their roar to the high-frequency buzz of matter recombining with antimatter. Daniel leaned back into his couch, since there was no need to fight the breaking thrust. When they dropped a little deeper into the atmosphere, he would have to shut off the high drive to prevent the exhaust from eroding the throats, but that wouldn't happen for some minutes. The harbor at Jezreel filled one quadrant of Daniel's display. It was a pool of modest size formed by damming the river which had carved the valley. There were six ships floating idle there, probably a sign of the collapse of planetary trade. They didn't fill the harbor, but Daniel wouldn't have wanted to land a vessel larger than the Kaisha on the surface area remaining. Daniel had inset a real-time image of Adele facing him on the other side of the console. Her expression was her usual one of unemotional focus. Daniel had no idea of what she was working on. He rarely did. But he was sure that when the time came, she would provide something that he suddenly realized that he needed. Whatever he suddenly realized that he needed. He grinned.
That was another entry in our complete audiobook serialization of The Sea Without a Shore by David Drake. And that's it for the podcast. Thanks to Audible.com, to Christopher Rocchio, and to podcast theme composer Ruth Judkowitz. And the last of the canned peaches from before the apocalypse, plus a great huzzah of thanks so pervasive that it could easily be mistaken for the background radiation of the universe for David Weber, the author of Shadow of Victory. Please join us next time here at the hammering heart of science fiction and fantasy. And keep reaching for the stars. Stars.